Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. I'm Steve, and we're going to go on a quick tour through the religious situation in Europe during the early 14th century. I want to thank David for giving me the opportunity to talk about this incredibly exciting time in the history of the world. The 1300s was not a high point in the history of the papacy, Roman Catholic Church, or really Christianity in general. The Church in the West will enter a very low period in its history called the Avignon Papacy. This is the period of about 75 to 100 years, depending on the source, where the popes of Rome moved their entire operation to Avignon in southern France. The Avignon papacy has been variously referred to as the crime of Avignon and the Babylonian exile, which doesn't paint a very pretty picture. For our purposes here, we are going to specifically discuss a 50-year period between 1292 in 1342. The Avignon papacy is generally considered to have started around 1309 and ended in 1378. I would argue one could say that the Avignon period wasn't completely really wrapped up until 1415 with the Council of Constance, or even a little after that. We'll start in 1292 because that's when the first few dominoes started to fall that would lead us to Avignon, and end in 1342 with the imminent outbreak of the Black Death. By 1342, the papacy is firmly settled in Avignon, and we start to move into a new phase of the Avignon papacy. It is really difficult to talk about this time in papal history without talking about politics and economics. The Avignon papacy will be known as a time where everything was for sale. Simony, or the selling and buying of ecclesiastical offices, was rampant and codified. The papacy took ever larger cuts of voluntary gifts given to local churches and sold more indulgences and the like than ever before. The economic situation in Europe was pretty solid at this time. Agriculture and crop yields were stronger than they had been for centuries. Interconnected banking and the use of a stable currency was also on the rise. The Crusades in the Holy Land and Outremer were winding down, but Western Europe was more connected at this time than it had been in a long, long time. Generally, you could say things were not so bad economically. There was an excess of wealth and trade was strengthening. This wasn't going to last much longer, but that's another story. The political situation is going to be very important for the emergence of the Avignon papacy. 
Let's just set the scene right now and then get into more specifics later. Europe at this time was highly fractured politically. The idea of the nation-state is quite a while in the future. Western Europe was divided into an uncountable number of counties, duchies, principalities, and kingdoms. In the far west, Spain was roughly divided between various Christian states in the north and Muslim states in the south. The Byzantine Empire was isolated to just the northern half of Greece and a strip of land along the west coast of Anatolia. The only political entity that had any central authority over a large area was the Roman Catholic Church. The Roman Catholic Church was the only game in town religion-wise in Western Europe. For most people at the time, religion was the central focus and infused every aspect of their lives. Heaven and hell were real places in the hearts of everyone in Christendom, and the Pope held the keys to heaven. The Pope was the supreme authority of the Church, and every part of the Church was supposed to answer to him. The Church controlled vast wealth all across Europe. Local bishops held large and productive estates and wielded vast power. This is where politics and economics came together. Everyone wanted to control this source of income. The local kings and rulers wanted a piece of it, and the popes didn't want to give it up. The actual lands that the Pope controlled was just a small strip of central Italy called the Papal States. To the north and south of the Papal Holdings were powerful states that were as hungry for control over land and influence as were the Popes. We're going to start the story of the Avignon Papacy in 1292. In 1292, Pope Nicholas IV died. This began a long papal interregnum. The process for selecting a new pope was not as formalized as it is today. The cardinals could meet anywhere they wanted to, and the conclave process wasn't restricted to only cardinal electors. The College of Cardinals was divided between two powerful warring families, the Colonna and the Orsini. They couldn't come to a decision on who to make the next pope, so the interregnum went on and on. This power vacuum was starting to cause a great deal of instability in the church. As the conclave went on, influential religious and political figures would send letters to the cardinals with their opinions trying to sway them one way or the other. In 1294, they received a letter from a popular ascetic religious figure named Peter of Morone. Peter of Morone founded a monastic order that had spread all throughout central and southern Italy. They were tied to the spiritual Franciscan movement. Cardinal Latino Orsini showed the letter to the conclave. The conclave was so moved by the letter they elected Peter of Morone Pope using a method called election by acclamation. In an election by acclamation, it is said that the Holy Spirit acts in each of the participants in the conclave to choose one specific person. This way of electing popes is specifically forbidden in the rules that govern how popes are elected today. Peter of Morone, who took the name Celestine V, was not the best choice for Pope at that time. He was well into his 80s, 
and didn't have the organizational experience or academic training to be Pope, Celestine was an extremely devout and spiritual man, but he was not cut out for the most powerful job in Christendom. For the entire length of his four-month term as Pope, Celestine was pushed around by more powerful figures. What gets the ball rolling for the Avignon papacy is that the King of Naples, Charles II, gets to Celestine first. Celestine would never actually go to Rome. He would live with Charles II and his kingdom. Charles II was closely related to the ruling house of France. Celestine didn't do too much during his reign, but one thing he did do was to start to pack the College of Cardinals with French cardinals. It really wasn't because Celestine had some huge concern for the French, but it was more to the fact that he did whatever the current person who had his ear said to do. During the majority of his papacy, the French-leaning clergy from the Kingdom of Naples had his ear. This begins the tipping of the College of Cardinals toward French interests. Celestine had enough of the papacy and decided to throw in the towel. He abdicated his throne in December of 1294. A pope had never voluntarily quit before this. A few popes had stepped aside in order to sell the papacy to someone else, but never had a pope resigned for personal reasons. Celestine would live out the next few months either on the run or in confinement under the next pope. Celestine was a pious and religious man, but he did not have what it took to be pope. Celestine would be canonized as a saint shortly after his death. The pope who would follow up Celestine V was Boniface VIII. Boniface was elected within a few days after the resignation of Celestine. Since there wasn't a legal mechanism for popes to resign, Boniface thought it best to keep Celestine close to him. By close, I mean locked up in a castle under Boniface's control. Boniface could not afford to have a real pope who could be manipulated as an opposing power center. Rome and the Papal States were in a precarious position in those days. The Papal States were located in between the northern Italian city-states, which were nominally under the control of the Holy Roman Empire, and the Kingdom of Naples, which was closely allied to the French. Then you had the actual Kingdom of France, which was very interested in, in Italian politics. That is where Philip IV, or Philip the Fair, King of France, comes in. Philip desperately needed money. The feudal system of taxation and revenue was not nearly sufficient to meet Philip's monetary needs. It was not cheap to keep an army ready to fight in those days, and there were plenty of fights to be had. Philip had the idea to tax the wealthy holdings of the church. Boniface did not agree with that in any way, shape, or form, and put a papal bull into effect that the clergy were not to pay any taxes to secular authorities. Boniface fully involved himself in the dynastic struggles of the day, trying to get the church involved as much as possible. Philip the Fair and Boniface squared off against each other in many arenas. Boniface needed to demonstrate that the papacy had real power, so in 1302 he issued a papal bull called Unum Sanctum, which stated that salvation could only come through obedience to the Pope of Rome. 
Here's a portion of Unum Sanctum that lays out what Boniface was getting at. Quote, Granted to Peter by a divine word and reaffirmed to him, Peter, and his successors by the one whom Peter confessed, the Lord, saying to Peter himself, Whatsoever you shall bind on earth shall be bound also in heaven, etc. Matthew 16.19 Therefore, whoever resists this power thus ordained by God, resists the ordinance of God. Romans 13.12 Unless he invent, like Manichaeus, two beginnings, which is false and judged by us heretical, since according to the testimony of Moses, it is not in the beginnings, but in the beginning that God created heaven and earth. Genesis 1.1 Furthermore, we declare, we proclaim, we define that it is absolutely necessary for salvation that every human creature be subject to the Roman pontiff. End quote. What the bull says over and over again is that there is a worldly and a spiritual power, but the temporal or worldly power is always subordinate to the spiritual power, and the Pope holds all of the spiritual power. Spiritual power and temporal power are not counterbalanced or have checks on each other. The spiritual trumps the temporal, and that's that. The piece about Manichaeus is a reference to the Manichaeans. The Manichaeans were a Gnostic group who believed in dualism, or that all things have a perfectly balanced opposite, such as good and evil, light and dark. This bull is saying that spiritual power is not balanced by temporal power. There's no dualism here. Obviously, this bull did not sit well with Philip the Fair. There were also some internal political fights in Italy, and the Colonna family went to France for protection. They became strong supporters of France. The power struggles went back and forth between Boniface and Philip. Philip continued to thumb his nose at Boniface, so in the end, Boniface excommunicated Philip in late 1301. Philip then convened a council to bring charges up against Boniface. He basically said Boniface did every bad and evil thing you could imagine. Philip is going to accuse his political enemies of every sinful behavior in the book time and time again. Back in Italy, a French-supported group of mercenaries, led by the Colonas, attacked where Boniface was holed up. They captured, but didn't kill Boniface. But he was so badly injured and treated, he died not too long afterward in 1303. After Boniface's downfall, the College of Cardinals met and quickly elected Benedict XI Pope within a matter of days. Benedict XI held two powerful jobs in the church before his election to the papacy. He was the Master General of the Dominican Monastic Order. The Dominican's job was to root out heresy and they ran the dreaded Inquisition. The post Benedict held right before his election was the Cardinal Bishop of Ostia under Boniface VIII, which was, and is to this day, the titular see of the Dean of the College of Cardinals. So one could have expected that Benedict would have supported the policies of his predecessor Boniface. That would not be the case. 
In Benedict's short reign, only about seven months, he reversed many of Boniface's policies. He took the teeth away from Unum Sanctum and reversed the excommunication of King Philip IV. Benedict also allowed the Colonna family to come back to town and really in every way back the plays of the French crown. There was another long interregnum of about two years after the death of Benedict XI. Clement V, a Gascon, not Italian, was elected in 1305. What we will see is that Clement V was completely Philip IV's man. Philip and Clement were childhood friends, but, believe it or not, Clement was a supporter of Boniface during his reign. Clement V is the Pope who actually moves the entire operation of the Church to Avignon in the first place. Rome was a volatile place to begin with, and even more so in the light of the treatment of Boniface VIII. Clement never even tried to set up his throne in Rome. His court traveled around France for a bit, but then finally picked Avignon as his seat. Avignon is located in the Provence region of southern France, about a 100 kilometers north of Marseille. Avignon was not actually in the King of France's land. It was located in the Kingdom of Naples' land. That could have been a reason it was selected. Avignon itself was a papal fief, but it was on the border of several kingdoms, including France, the Kingdom of Naples, and the Holy Roman Empire. The city or town of Avignon was not suited to hold the papal court. It simply did not have the civil infrastructure to support all that came with the papal court. It just wasn't the Pope and a few cardinals we're talking about here. We're talking about the entire governing mechanism of the Roman Catholic Church, along with merchants, hangers-ons, entertainers, you name it. Subsequent popes would start to build up the infrastructure of Avignon, but that would take time. The poet Petrarch, who lived in Avignon during the middle portion of the 1300s, would say that Avignon was, quote, a disgusting city and a sewer where all the filth of the universe is collected. There are several layers of meaning here. Firstly, as we said, Avignon was not equipped to handle the massive increase in population that was involved with being the seat of the papacy. Petrarch was also concerned with the corruption of the papacy itself and the volume of criminals and other less-than-reputable sorts that were attracted to the power and wealth of the papacy. The main theme of Clement's papacy was that he did whatever Philip wanted him to. This will lead us into one of the most distasteful abuses of power and violence in the Middle Ages, the persecution of the Knights Templar. Clement V did every bit of Philip IV's dirty work regarding the Templars and had their order dissolved at the Council of Vienne in 1312. We have another long papal interregnum of nearly two and a half years after the death of Clement V. The College of Cardinals at this point had 16 cardinals from France or lands with French leanings and only eight Italians. Still, the college could not come together and elect a pope. Finally, after some serious arm twisting by the successor to Philip IV, his son Philip V, the college elected a Frenchman who took the name of John the Twenty-Second. 
In his pre-papal career, John XXII completely backed Unum Sanctum and the destruction of the Templars. John really didn't make any pretense to give it a go in Rome. He went right to Avignon instead, and from there heavily involved himself in Italian and German politics. He tried to settle the succession dispute between Louis IV of Bavaria and Frederick of Austria. Louis IV was not a big fan of John XXII and had a document published that was highly critical of John XXII and his policies. In this document, known as the Sachsenhausen Appellation, it stated that the Pope had absolutely no power in Holy Roman imperial elections and criticized John's stance on the spiritual Franciscan movement. Louis IV of Bavaria surrounded himself with a number of church scholars who were not very pleased with the Pope and the papacy at that time, including William of Ockham. What we also see in the papacy of John XXII is Avignon really beginning to get built up. The famous winery of Chateau Neuf de Pape was founded during John XXII's reign. The next pope to be elected is Benedict XII. Benedict is the last pope we're going to discuss today. Benedict was a compromise choice and thought to be a place filler because he was French, but he didn't come from a wealthy or powerful family. Benedict probably would have never even been a cardinal in the first place before the fact he was an excellent inquisitor. He had 183 men and women burned at the stake at one time while working on ridding the Languedoc of heresy. For his effort, he was made a cardinal. Benedict tried to bring some reforms to the church, and it appears that he had some real intention to bring the papacy back to Rome. He had work done on St. Peter's and provided money toward having St. John Lateran's restored after it had been destroyed by fire. In the end, he did not bring the papacy back to Rome. The cardinals didn't want to leave Avignon for a Rome that was a complete mess of violence and revolt. Avignon was a pretty decent place by this point. It had been built up by Benedict XII, who would see to the building of the Palais du Pape in 1339. Benedict did his best to stamp out the worst of the corruption, but after Benedict was gone, it would all come back. The death of Benedict XII in 1342 is as good of a place to stop as any. All of Philip IV's three sons are dead, and a dynastic struggle for who had the best claim on the French throne was beginning to heat up. A plague was about to hit that would kill somewhere between one-third and one-half of the population of Eurasia. These two events, and many more, are just around the corner. To wrap up this trip through the beginnings of the Avignon Papacy, I'd like to share another quick quote from Petrarch, taken from a letter written to a friend right around 1340, and this is from the Fordham University Medieval Sourcebook. Now I am living in France, in the Babylon of the West. The sun, in its travels, sees nothing more hideous than this place on the shores of the wild Rhone, which suggests the hellish streams of Coxictus and Acheron. Here reign the successors of the poor fishermen of Galilee. They have strangely forgotten their origin. 
I am astounded, as I recall their predecessors, to see these men loaded with gold and clad in purple, boasting of the spoils of princes and nations, to see luxurious palaces and heights crowned with fortifications, instead of a boat turned downward for shelter. We no longer find the simple nets which were once used to gain a frugal sustenance from the Lake of Galilee, and with which, having labored all night and caught nothing, they took at daybreak a multitude of fishes in the name of Jesus. One is stupefied nowadays to hear the lying tongues and to see worthless parchments turned by a leaden seal into nets which are used, in Christ's name, but by the arts of Baliol, to catch hordes of unwary Christians. These fish, too, are dressed and laid on the burning coals of anxiety before they fill the insatiable maw of their captors. Instead of holy solitude, we find a criminal host and crowds of the most infamous satellites. Instead of soberness, licentious banquets, instead of pious pilgrimages, preternatural and foul sloth, instead of the bare feet of the apostles, the snowy corsairs of brigands fly by, the horses decked in gold and fed on gold, soon to be shod with gold, if the Lord does not check this slavish luxury. In short, we seem to be among the kings of the Persians or the Parthians, before whom we must fall down and worship, and who cannot be approached except presence be offered. O ye unkempt and emaciated old men, is it for this you labored? Is it for this that you have sown the field of the Lord and watered it with your holy blood? But let us leave the subject. I have been so depressed and overcome that the heaviness of my soul has passed into bodily affliction so that I am really ill and can only give voice to sighs and groans, end quote. Petrarch pretty much sums it all up better than anyone else. I want to say that I can't thank David enough for inviting me to discuss the Avignon papacy and the papal situation of the early 1300s on his podcast. I've had a blast researching this era and look forward to learning more about it. If you enjoy learning more about the history of the popes, I host a podcast called The History of the Papacy Podcast, which discusses papal history. It can be found in all the usual places, iTunes, Facebook, etc. Thank you, and I hope you have enjoyed. <laughs>